This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company today for The Country Hour. I'm Cassie, half across South Australia and into Broken Hill in the far west of New South Wales. Now, cooperatives have made a big difference in Australia's agricultural history and there is once again a push for more farmer control, but in a different area of the supply chain. So what we're seeing is a real renaissance in the interest in cooperatives. They've always been important in our agricultural history, but what we're finding now is that primary producers are rediscovering the business model, particularly to do value-adding. More on that soon. And I'll have the uh, latest in wine exports. They're still struggling without the Chinese market, so I'll have the 2022 results soon. But first up today, well-known South Australian grain grower and former plant breeder and researcher Andrew Barr has been awarded the Grains Research and Development Corporation's Seed of Gold Award, one of the grains industry's most prestigious awards. It was handed out this morning at the GRDC's Grains Update in Adelaide. That's kicked off this morning. Now, Professor Barr is only is one of only five people to have received this Seed of Gold Award. He joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Cassie? I'm um, well, thank you. Congratulations on the award. It's quite a coup, particularly from your, your peers and from the industry. It was uh, quite a shock. Very, very humbling. I don't think shock is the word for it when you think about all the things you've done in the industry. You've had a long career in agriculture. Can you maybe enlighten us to some of the highlights you've, you've experienced through your time? Yeah, I've been very lucky, Cassie. I worked for the South Australian Department of Agriculture and then SARDI after I graduated as an oak breeder had wonderful mentors and great support um, for 17 years and then transferred to the University of Adelaide and uh, managed the South Australian Barley Improvement Program after David Sparrow retired. And from there, my dad retired from farming in 2003 and I'd always wanted to be a farmer. And um, so that was at age 48 our last chance to have a go at that. So Helen and I moved home to the family farm in 2003. And so we've been running that since then, as well as doing some off-farm work in research and development management in GRDC Southern Panel and the GRDC Board and SAGET, and also some time working with CIMIT based in Mexico and serving the developing world for wheat and corn improvement. I'm sure it's good to apply some of your hard-earned research knowledge actually uh, practically on farm. Uh, There's sometimes when it's useful and other times when I just need to talk to my neighbours to get their wisdom. (laughs) Well, I mean, you've had some highlights, but you also experienced some tough times. You were in the the thick of the Pinery Fire in uh, 2015. What did you learn from that awful time? Uh, that would have to be the probably lowest point of my career. It was pretty hard going. Um, we lost uh, a valued neighbour and some of our friends were badly injured in the fire, as well as we lost our home and our daughter and son-in-law's home. And so it's a big job to rebuild from there. And 
the support from the wider community was incredible, but it's still hard yards and it's taken us a lot of years to get the place back to where it once was. And it now feels, you know, we have a beautiful new home, which I guess is one of the positives out of losing your home, um, but yeah, perhaps not an experience that, you would recommend everyone go through. Not at all. It was a horrible time. You mentioned some of your breeding work there. I believe you developed 24 varieties of oats, barley and wheat, including uh, echidna and commander lines. They're quite well-known lines now. Just from that point of view, how much potential do you think there still is for growers to reap the benefits of genetic gain after so many years of genetic gain? Oh, still huge, Cassie. The um, the impact of the genomics and biotechnology revolution is is only just starting to be felt. And uh, we have world-class breeding programs still in Australia with AGT, Intergrain, Longreach and others. And they are starting to, or have started to apply genomic selection tools to breeding. And they run large programs and... Um, between the, the technologies and their scale, I'm expecting that we're going to continue to see um, rapid gains in the productivity of our varieties that we, we base our agriculture on. You are also a keynote speaker at the GRDC Grains Research Update in Adelaide. Your topic is, can our farming systems meet the global challenges of climate change, food security and sustainability? Sometimes uh, these aren't always working in tandem. What are some of the, the goals that need to be met and are the systems up to that? I guess what I tried to do in the talk today was to encourage the update uh, GRDC Update community to think more broadly than just about uh, productivity issues. And I tried to present perspectives on the future of agriculture from many and diverse sources. So David Attenborough, Bill Gates, uh, a number of people who you would think perhaps didn't have strong views on agriculture. And then I look at a number of the farming systems that are being promoted, organic, regenerative, precision, sustainable conservation. There's a whole range of, of different farming systems that people talk about. And what I've tried to do is to pull out eight criteria by which you would judge the value of those farming systems and of the elements that, that make them up. So things like um, objectively measuring the um, soil health, um, the ability to feed a global population of 8 billion today but 9.8 billion by 2050. Um, uh, uh, the need to have a smaller environmental footprint, whether that is in greenhouse gas emissions or whether it's in off-target tar off herbicides, those sorts of things. Um, and there are, as I said, eight of those things that I discussed in my talk by which you would judge the value of those, those um, farming system innovations. And did you come to a conclusion about which ones would be better to meet those global challenges or is it really down to the um, skill of the person using whichever method? Each of them has something to teach us. And if we look in Europe, they're now uh, partway into a program called Farm to Fork. And in that um, program, they're going to 
ask their farmers to get to 25% of their crop production uh, using organic techniques. And they're going to ask for a reduction of 50% in pesticide use and 20% in fertiliser use. So that encourages, uh, or I guess tells us that change is coming for Australia too. And we look at a lot of the global food companies and the grain and agribusiness companies, and they are very heavily committed to sustainability models. And so I talked quite a bit about sustainable farming systems and, and how they're measured and how they're implemented around the world. But will they feed the world? Will they be able to, to as you said, uh, meet that, uh, what is it, 9.8 billion people in several years' time? Yeah, well, that's the... Have, I dealt with the issue from a scientific perspective and there was a terrific uh, paper in Nature recently that did a really large-scale analysis of organic versus conventional ag. And while for tree crops the yields are very close, and that's great, um, for field crops, and particularly for wheat and barley, organic production is around 60 to 70% of um, conventional agriculture. So therein lies a big challenge for organic growers is to bridge that gap. And in, in Europe, uh, their intention is to redirect 25% of their research funds into improving the productivity of, of organic systems. So in terms of the systems that we're more familiar with in Australia, um, I think the combination of conservation ag, precision ag and sustainable ag uh, can still lead to very high levels of productivity. But we need to address some of the shortcomings in our current farming systems. And probably the, the one that is most obvious is around the carbon footprint of our fertiliser practices, both in getting that fertiliser to the farm gate, um, it's in terms of its manufacture and transport, and in terms of its uh, impact on farm. So I've foreshadowed that there's going to be very much higher levels of scrutiny on the way in which we uh, conduct our farming businesses in the future. And they are further down the track when it comes to glyphosate and neonicotinoids being uh, used less and uh, genetically modified crops. Just quickly, how far away do you think it is before this pressure will be felt quite keenly in Australia? I think right now, um, I, I judge the public debate in Australia uh, that there are more people interested in the future of farming from outside of traditional farming circles than than ever before. And so I think it's something we have to be engaged as an industry in right now. Well, congratulations on the award, the Seed of Gold Award. It's a, a very prestigious award in the grain industry and one that you have earned over many years of uh, work within the industry. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Cassie. Professor Andrew Barr there, the winner of uh, the Seed of Gold Award from the Grains Research and Development Corporation. It is 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
to co-ops now and primary producers are increasingly turning to co-ops to rebuild Australia's capacity to process products following supply chain disruptions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's at least according to Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals Chief Executive Melina Morrison. She tells Eliza Berlage the resurgence of agricultural co-ops is driven by farmers seeking a better financial return for their crops. So what we're seeing is a real renaissance in the interest in cooperatives. They've always been important in our agricultural history. In fact, some of our biggest export markets in agriculture are dominated by cooperatives. That's in not only in nuts uh, like, like almonds, but in berries, the blueberry sector. Uh, wheat is exported, 40% of wheat is exported out of Western Australia through a farmer-owned uh, cooperative called CBH. So they're really important historically. But what we're finding now is that primary producers are rediscovering the business model, particularly to do value adding. So food and beverage manufacturing, the the advanced part of the process to get more value from the primary producers where we're seeing growth. We're really hoping that the canneries are going to come back because they were such an important way that Australia secured its food security in the past. And we've lost a lot of that value added activity. We need to get it back. And have you heard much uh, interest from growers or um, any uh, industry groups about yeah, trying to bring canneries back? Yeah, look, we have really become, uh, in many respects, a net importer of manufactured food goods. And what primary producers want to do is own more of the supply chain, particularly the value-adding part, because that's the bit that adds to their farm income. Uh, if we think of those great labels uh, that we used to know, Golden Circle, um, Safcoal, Goulburn Valley, um, these were all great Aussie brands and they were cooperatively owned. So what we're sensing now and getting inquiries about is how can we set up a farmer cooperative or producer cooperative that's going to just do that part of it. We want to own the value adding part and even marketing, you know, labelling and getting into more export markets. We can think about this around uh, boutique industries as well, like wine. It's not just about getting uh, the, the bigger companies on the global map, it's smaller producers coming together and uh, through their network, marketing and, able, and being able to export um, into the global market as if they're a bigger entity. And we're here at the opening of um, Armand Co, uh, a number of facilities and projects that they've been working on recently. I guess so looking at the Armand Co cooperative model and um, some of these facilities, what do you think is helping drive them and their success to be able to you know, invest in their future like this? In, in South Australia, they have access to um, tre- Treasury T Corp loans, which are a facility that producer-owned cooperatives um, can uh, can procure from government lending. Um, that that means that they're able to use their own capital, their own balance sheet, which they leverage um, with the loan facility, and they, then they can they can do the development like we're seeing here at Armand Co. Twenty-eight million dollar facility. But it's the return on investment for that for that debt uh, that debt facility that's quite dramatic. It's local jobs. It's growing the value-adding part of the business. It's just incredible to be here today and think 80% of Australia's almond growers are a member of this one grower cooperative. And this facility, which has been opened here, is going to really 
increase the sustainability of that form of farming in Australia. It really means that farmers can look much more um, sustainably to the future and know that farm incomes are going to be protected. So I really commend the South Australian Government for continuing to offer these uh, these loans. Uh, not all states do, but it, it's actually a competitive advantage to South Australia in terms of attracting agricultural businesses through cooperatives that they can actually extend that facility. And to your knowledge, do many other states or territories or indeed countries around the world offer these kind of uh, grants or incentives? Look, lots of countries around the world recognise that if you want to invest in the agricultural economy and you want uh, to increase export dollars, you want local economic um, growth, you want local jobs and you want long-term businesses, uh, with, you know, businesses that have that longer vision and stay in their regional economies, that cooperatives are just a great model. So different forms of government support are provided to try and incentivise becoming a cooperative and staying a cooperative. In Australia, New South Wales offers a similar type of, of, of loan facility. Um, not, all, not all of the other states do. They should, uh, they should think about um, starting uh, to offer them again. Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, Melina Morrison, speaking with Eliza Berlage there. Now moving to pigs and a precious metal is part of new technology being developed by South Australian and Chinese researchers to better diagnose a highly infectious disease in pigs. Researchers have found gold nanorod probes are more efficient than PCR tests to detect this porcine epidemic diarrhoea virus. PEDV is a disease from the coronavirus family, which we're very familiar with these days, and has caused economic loss to pig, the pig industry in parts of Asia and America. It's not actually in Australia at the moment, that, uh, that virus, but University of South Australia bioengineer Xi Zhong uh, Yang tells Eliza Berlage how the technology works. Uh, basically, the strategy uh, we use is to, uh, by using the specific antibody modified chip and to capture the virus particle, followed by the gold nanorod probe to further identify the virus binding. And so with the strong light scattering of the gold particles, we can easily count the virus numbers under the dark field microscope. How does this improve on, on previous detection techniques? Because the current gold standard for the detection of the virus infection is through PCR, which is a technique we use for cover test. But the PCR provides sensitive and rapid detection of viral virus in samples. However, it takes a couple of hours to perform the RNA extractions, reverse transcription of samples prior to PCR. And also, we need the clean environment to prevent sample contamination. Plus, the PCR instrument is expensive and usually not available in rural areas. So all these things will limit the practical use of PCR for on-site detection of the viral infection. In this study, we already approved, we already proved the sensitivity comparable as a PCR method. So I think the next step is we can integrate the system into a portable equipment, and that can be used for the on-site detection in the rural area, which is the PCR currently cannot do because the PCR, we need to process all these samples in a centralized laboratory and also in a very uh, clean environment. As um, you know, a lot of people have, are familiar with PCR tests and have taken them themselves, how were the PCR tests uh, done on, on pigs before? And, and how, does this, how is this test used on pigs? 
basically you need to get the viral samples, which is we can obtain. For example, if we, we're going to test the porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, and then we will get the, the swab of the intestinal pigs, and then we get the samples to the centralized laboratory and do the following steps to basically extract the viral RNA and for PCR detection. Yeah, so how are the gold nanoparticles used to, to test? As I mentioned, we need the, like a tiny small chip. They already functionalized with some particles. So we can easily get the, like the swab and to basically dissolve in some sort of buffer. And then we easily um, suck a little bit of the buffer and drop on the tiny small chip. And then following by the, um, the drop of tiny um, droplet of the gonello rod solution. And the raw solution can form a sandwich complex. And is this solution, is this uh, the gold nanoparticles, is that more expensive to use? No, it's very commercial, uh, uh, widely available particles. You can easily buy from the company. But what we need to do is we need to do some sort of functionalization prior to use. How soon could the industry see uh, adoption of, of this type of testing being used more widely to detect this virus? Um, I think this is a good question. As I say, um, the next step would be, because currently we only do like within the lab test. So in the future, like with the support of the funding agency, we aim to basically integrate the whole system into like a more portable equipment that can be really for on-site detection. And I hope this technology will be soon available in Australia to benefit like the, the whole big industry in the future. University of South Australia's Ji Chong Yang speaking with Eliza Berlage and the ABC has reached out to the South Australian and Chief Veterinary Officers for more information. Right across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, we're senior forecaster Simon Timke has the latest on this warming weather. Good afternoon. Hi there, Cassie. How are things looking across the state? Look, uh, on the satellite picture at the moment, there is barely any cloud across the state. There's a, a, a little bit in the very far northeast corner and a bit of cloud persisting about parts of the southern coasts. But other than that, uh, clear skies right across. Uh, the, the situation is there's a, a, a little trough just sneaking into the far northeast corner. There's quite a bit of cloud over southwestern Queensland and I think during the afternoon that, that trough will drag a little bit of moisture into SA and, and will be the chance of seeing some showers or thunderstorms right up in that far northern part, sort of north of Moomba. Um, elsewhere conditions staying dry today um, and Generally mild to warm in the south and warm to hot elsewhere, but very hot in the far west today. The winds today uh, are generally southeast to northeasterly, and we'll see some fresh sea breezes near the coast during the afternoon. Not much change for tomorrow either. Still a chance of a shower or thunderstorm in the very far northeast there, but dry conditions elsewhere. Getting a little bit warmer too. We've sort of got a gradual increase in temperatures over the next couple of days, so we'll see. Um, very hot conditions extend a little bit more generally over the west on Wednesday uh, and then the west and the north on Thursday. Uh, a, a trough pushes into the far west during Thursday, moves across most of the state on Friday apart from the far northeast. Uh, and, and although we've got that trough moving across bringing some milder south to south uh, westerly winds, it's going to be mostly dry. It doesn't look to be bringing any showers or thunderstorms with it at this stage. So some Hot to very hot conditions developing ahead of that change, but then becoming milder as that change moves across all but the far northeast of the state on uh, on Friday. Uh, over the weekend, again, mostly 
mostly uh, dry conditions, still very hot in the very far north of the state, but a bit milder further south. And those dry conditions continue into early next week as well. Uh, as far as the rainfall totals go for the next few days, not really too much to talk about. Just the, the far northeast corner there where we might see uh, uh, the order of 2 to 10 millimetres, maybe getting to 10 to 30 millimetres with, uh, with some local thunderstorms. But uh, apart from that, dry conditions everywhere else. Cassie? Yes, it certainly is some very summery weather. Thanks so much for that, Simon. Thanks, Cassie. Simon Timke there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a slight chance of a shower or thunderstorm in the far east during the afternoon and evening. Winds might pick up a little as well. Overnight, the temperatures are going to fall to between 19 and 23 degrees, but during the day, the temperatures will reach the mid to high 30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny, again a bit of wind around through the middle of the day, but otherwise overnight temperatures are going to get down to between 13 and 17 degrees. Daytime temperatures though reaching the low to mid 30s. More to come on the country hour, including a bit of a look at the latest on geographic indicators, the the, um, uh, terms like feta and things like that that may potentially be banned from use in Australia if uh, this, potentially if this um, free trade agreement with the, the EU goes heads more on that soon right now though it is coming up to 12 30. you're listening to the country hour for more stories from across the country go to abc.net.au slash rural on abc radio adelaide south australia and broken hill this is cassie huff cassie huff after Chinese tariffs and COVID. Uh, there have been some tough trading conditions in recent years. But one thing that's come out of it is that there's been a big change in what we're drinking. And it's probably you know, pre-2010 when Chardonnay was last sort of the number one um, variety exported. But I think that's reflective of that sort of a shifting demand towards whites in many markets around the world. Are you drinking more white wine than you were before? There's a number of factors as to why Chardonnay has overtaken Shiraz as the number one export. It is being uh, drunk uh, more in Australia as well. So are you are you finding you're gravitating to whites now after a long time when red wines were favoured? Let me know. Text 0467 922 I'll also have an update on where the negotiations around geographic indicators for different uh, foods like feta and things like that are going with the the European Union. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, at least 3,500 people are now known to have died in two devastating earthquakes and aftershocks that have struck southern Turkey and Syria. Rescue crews are battling freezing temperatures to comb through the wreckage of collapsed buildings to search for survivors through the night. A man will be sentenced to life in prison after admitting to killing 21-year-old South Australian aged care worker Jasmine Kaur. She was killed in the state's far north in March 2021, with her body found in a shallow grave in the Flinders Ranges north of Hawker. 22-year-old Tarajot Singh was due to stand trial in May after pleading not guilty to her murder, but he's changed his plea to guilty in the Supreme Court. And the opposition leader David Spears says he wants to know more details about the First Nations voice to state parliament before supporting 
supporting it. Legislation to enshrine the voice to SA's Parliament is set to be introduced this week. The proposal would allow Aboriginal people to elect 40 representatives from their geographical area, 12 of whom could then speak on any bill before Parliament. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. So we're saying Chardonnay has overtaken Shiraz as the top export variety for the first time in more than 12 years. Wine exporters have had a tough 12 months, though, with only a 1% increase in volume, but a 4% decrease in value. And I'm interested to hear from you about whether or not your drinking tastes have changed. Maybe it's just summertime. I know I'm uh, more inclined to drink uh, red, uh, sorry, white wine and, and rosé over summer. So uh, it seems like it's a bit more pronounced than that because this, these are the full year results. But I'd be interested to know if your tastes are shifting. You can text me 0467 or phone 1300 Wine Australia's Manager for Market Insights, Peter Bailey, says there are a number of factors influencing the wine trade last year. Oh, look, it was another tough year for Australian wine exporters. Um, you know, we've had rising inflation, business costs and interest rates all impacting on, on mar- margins and it's a, still a fairly tough um, operating environment out there. So in 2022, uh, we did see an increase in volume of 1% uh, to 623 million litres, um, but value declined by 4% to $1.94 billion. We've actually seen exports above $5 per litre growing quite strongly. So, you know, there was growth... Um, you know, up uh, 2% in value and with markets like Thailand, Malaysia, Canada, Denmark and Japan all growing at that end of the market and particularly above $10 per litre where we saw some growth, you know, 3% growth up to $623 uh, million. So, yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. What drove that decline in value? So the decline in value was mostly driven by decline in shipments to the UK and, and this drop was anticipated as, you know, in the previous two years Australia experienced elevated shipments as a result of the Brexit deadlines with, you know, wineries trying to get um, wines into the market before that happened. But then we saw a spike in demand for wine in the off-trade during the COVID-19 pandemic when many of the on-trade businesses were closed. Yeah, there has been a, a substantial fall into the UK, but overall Europe in general has seen a 16% drop. So that's broader than just the UK. Why, why is Europe proving so difficult? Oh, look, um, European markets are really experiencing tough operating conditions and you know, that's resulting from economic challenges, shipping delays and also the conflict in the region. So it's, it's a very tough um, market at the moment in, in Europe. In America, the focus is normally on the US, and there has been quite a lot of investment to try and increase our, our market share there. But exports to Canada have seen a bit of an uptick. How much and what's going on there? Yeah, so exports to Canada increased by 14% in value to $188 million and 46% in volume um, to 68 million litres. And really driving the growth in that market was an increase in unpackaged wine shipment, um, which increased by um, 81% in volume to Canada. Um, but we also saw some growth um, above $5 per litre in that market as well, up 13%. Um, so there's some really good uh, um, results coming out of Canada. And America, as I mentioned, is the largest market by, um, by value, but it's still dropped by 3%. Why is that? Oh, there's a number of factors playing out um, for the US figures. You know, volume overall actually increased in that market. So we actually saw, like like Canada, we saw an increase um, in unpackaged shipments to that market. And that's really as a result of the shipping challenges have eased somewhat to to the US. And so Australian producers were able to ship their sort of 2021 and 22 uh, wines to customers in those markets. 
There's still been a decline into the to Northeast Asia, which brings in China. What? Where is China sitting now after a two years of tariffs being applied? So yeah, exports to China have dropped to about to twelve million dollars. So that makes it the twenty third biggest market for Australian exporters. So it's it's now a relatively um, small market overall, but it's still you know it still remains an important market um, for Australian wine. So you know Australian companies which have developed close relationships with importers, buyers, and consumers, um, you know those relationships still remain very important to our, uh, our wine industry. And there's been some improvement into Southeast Asia. All the countries, major countries except for Singapore, seem to have increased their intake of Australian wine. Where's the focus and and what sort of wine's going into those countries? So, yeah, exports to Southeast Asia increased by 16% in value to $305 million. So, as you mentioned, um, all markets, with exception of Singapore, increased. So, the main drivers behind that growth, you know, were Thailand, up 118%, and Malaysia, up 78%. Um, But we did see that decline in exports to to Singapore, down 20%, which offset some of those gains. Um, but, you know, as we know, Singapore is a, a trading hub and it can be quite volatile in terms of where that wine is then on ship to, to other markets. But, yeah, so in terms of the wines going into Southeast Asia, you're very much, you know, red wine is very popular there. Um, but there's also um, white wine um, being exported to that market as well. So, The Australian vintage is not far away. There have been some reasonable sized crops in the last couple of years that have contributed to quite a lot of wine being stored. How much of a concern is that heading into vintage and what can growers do? Oh, look, there's, there's no doubt that um, stock levels leading into this vintage are, you know, are above sort of sustainable levels. So I know there's been sort of adjustments being made um, in both the vineyard and with wineries uh, leading into this vintage. Australia has been famous for its Shiraz for many years and it has been the top export variety again for many years. But Chardonnay has now overtaken the red wine as the, the top export variety. What is driving that? Well, there's no doubt that um, there's very strong demand for Australian white wine not just in the domestic market, but also in export market. So we saw white wine exports increase by 5% in value in the last 12 months and, and 10% in volume. And so, you know, it was Chardonnay, it's number one, with, you know, volume up 11%. And it's probably, you know, pre-2010 when Chardonnay was last sort of the number one um, variety exported. But I think that's reflective of that sort of a shifting demand towards whites in many markets around the world. So it is actually a preference for white wine rather than just China not taking as much Shiraz as it was? I think there's, there's, there is a combination. So, yeah, no, no doubt China was a massive uh, red wine market for us and, and losing that market overnight certainly had an impact on those red wine export figures. But at the same time, there is strong demand for white. So it's sort of a combination of factors playing out there. Wine Australia manager for Market Insights, Peter Bailey, speaking there. Do you uh, are you a part of this trend towards more Chardonnay and uh, white wine? Uh, the, I think uh, in the top five, there's also uh, some Pinot, some white Pinot varieties as well that are, are getting some interest. So uh, I'd be interested to know if you're making a bit of a, a shift to white varieties over red varieties after Shiraz being the top export variety and uh, one consumed a lot in Australia as well for many years, not since the, the um, 2010s was there a white on top. So uh, I'd be interested to know if you are someone who has 
has made the change. But uh, while we're speaking about wine, this uh, very slight lift in export volume is welcome news to wine growers or grape growers that are facing a, a difficult, who are facing a difficult vintage. Yanni John Katuzis and his family supply grapes to CCW as well as making wines under their own label. He tells Eliza Berlows that he hopes to see this upward trend, even if it is very modest, for exports continue. Look, it's, it's promising. Like, you know, it's, a, it's a very slow increase in, in obviously the export market you know, being 1%, but it, it seems like the trend will hopefully keep on going going forward, especially you know, when we're looking out for other markets such as other countries. Uh, except for uh, you know, sort of China, because I mean, China was a huge emphasis, I think, in export, uh, exporting wine and grapes to in grape juice to the, uh, to China. So it, it is quite promising. Uh, fingers crossed that that does you know the red grape situation does get better. Looking at the wine grapes that your family grows, what does it mean looking at those that continued decline in demand for Cabernet and Shiraz, and that continued demand yeah. for Chardonnay and Pinot Gris? Look, it is it is uh, quite a difficult situation. We haven't decided yet whether to um, you know pull those vines out or graft them into different varieties, like those white varieties that you just mentioned. We're sort of going to maybe as a as a grower because they're such well established grapes, perhaps just hold off a little while before we do if we do diversify. Um, so we're at that situation. We will be struggling financially. That's that's for sure. It is going to be quite tough, not having hardly any income or nothing at all, because we're not sure whether we will drop those varieties to the ground this year. So it's uh, it's going to be a difficult situation for the next year or two, but we haven't yet decided what we want to do uh, in regards to those varieties and, and whether we'll keep them or not going going um, you know forward. But you know we will be finding these new markets if, if wine Australia and, and, and major wineries do find newer markets. And if the relationship between China and Australia, you know, that that improves, then there should be some hope for those red varieties to go back in traction and then hopefully the demand does grow. Is there any uh, particular information that you or your family are waiting on to, to make that decision? I know, for example, waiting to hear about the, the latest negotiations between CCW and Accolade, or is that a factor? Yeah, is there other info absolutely. you're waiting on? Yeah, we're waiting on CCW and Accolade to basically come in the negotiations to see what, how, what the future really looks like for these varieties. We haven't heard anything from them as yet. There's nothing that has been disclosed apart from the meeting that we had several months ago about, you know, we don't, you know, we're not really interested in the reds. There's no demand for them. Our tanks are full. And these are options of planning, say, something on blog or Pinot Gris. Uh, but at this stage, to do that, you also need to quite a large expense for a farmer to, to be able to transition from you know one variety to a red variety to a white variety, so it's something that we're still working on at the moment. And of course, um, thinking about uh, a, a project that's yeah really growing that you've been working on, um, your own wine label, uh, sixty eight roses. Uh, you've just been able to go to the Cellar Door Fest in Adelaide, and I understand you'll be part of a contingent going to Pro Wine in Germany. Are you seeing uh, much uptake from from consumers within Australia or interest from international markets in your um, own label? Yeah, absolutely. Like you know, Cellar Door Fest is an amazing local. Adelaide-based festival where so many people, you know, attend from interstate, from hotels, from hospitality sectors, from so many restaurants, and they just want to go around and taste the wines. And it's a, it's great that we are there and we exist as a brand, as a GI brand in the Riverland section at Cellar Fest because they, people are realising that Riverland 
is making these exceptional, great quality, funky style, uh, easy drinking style wines. And it's just fantastic to be able to represent the Riverland uh, at Cellador Fest and also super ex- excited to go to Germany uh, in March this year, again with Wine Australia and Riverland Wine, representing our brands, representing our region, representing our Murray region. I think it's fantastic to be optimistic and um, and, and really move forward and try and, and uh, promote our, our region as a food and wine uh, sort of capital, I suppose. Yanni John Katusa speaking with Eliza Berlage there. I've had a text in from Pam from Narracourt saying, uh, I have not had red wine for 30 years. I only drink white. That's interesting. You're so close to Kunawara there. Now, uh, Pam says she prefers Riesling, Sav Blanc and Pinot Gris. Used to drink Chardonnay all the time, but now prefer the lighter whites. However, she is coming back around to Chardonnay as they don't seem to be. Heavy, as so heavy these days. I must admit, I, I'm quite partial to a shardy. I, I haven't uh, been uh, a long-time drinker to know the differences, but, yeah, I find uh, I find uh, Chardonnay is quite a nice drink in summertime. So uh, thanks for your text there, Pam. You can keep those texts coming, 0467 921 or phone 1300 991 It's a quarter to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Department of Foreign Affairs to talk naming rights. The EU wants to restrict rights over 50 types of cheese, including Australian favourites like feta, parmesan and pecorino. Rick Gladigo is the president of the lobby group Australian Dairy Farmers. He told Tina Quinn the fallout from these negotiations could be huge. The geographical indicator is something that the EU sort of has been trying to push in all the trade agreements they've been doing with other countries. To me, it's basically creating a trade barrier, not creating free trade, as you know, it's supposed to be free trade agreements. You know, I mean, geographical indicators are about, say, a provenance or a town or something where they, they feel this brand or name is originated from and they're trying to then create this geographical indicator to say, no, this is where it comes from and, and nobody else should be allowed to, to use it. It's almost like a copyright on it. But we're, we're fighting back saying, no, look, these are well-known, widespread, used around the world names already. So to then say, oh, you can't use that name is just, well, to me, it's nearly irrational. So, it's you know, it's names like Feta and Parmesan and Halloumi and Gruyere, etc., which especially names like Parmesan and Feta, are big here. And we've got people from, as a multicultural country, we've got uh, migrants here who've brought this heritage and culture with them to the country and these cheese-making skills and to make these styles of cheeses uh, and then to be told by their their home country, basically, sorry, you can't call it Feta anymore. You have to call it something else. Don't know what you call it, but you can't call it Feta. And what was DFAT's response to your concerns and the, and the sector's concerns when you raised it with them this week? They've been very supportive of us uh, and they certainly see what we're highlighting here and, and the issue with it. So they've been very supportive of, of what, we're, uh, what we're trying to achieve here and say, to say no. And that's pretty much what we expect them to take to the table. So Dairy Australia has known that this was coming for a number of years now. What have you actually done in terms of a solution-based response or a way forward for the sector if the EU does indeed get its way? 
I mean, we've known at ADF and, and ADIC level as well as Dairy Australia, we've basically kept highlighting the reasons why this shouldn't come into play as part of a free trade agreement. And we've basically stuck to that cause to say, no, now, this will cost us up to $95 million a year. We're talking a 1,000 jobs. We're talking probably small businesses that could shut down. We're talking dairy farmers that, you know, myself, I supply small cheesemakers that make these types of cheeses. Okay, well, you know, the reason I've gone to them is they're a local business. They're paying me a good price to uh, produce my milk to look after me and doing these, these styles. So the ramifications are huge in it. And so we've basically said this is what the fallout will be. This is why we say no to it. And, and we've seen already in other trade negotiations where they haven't stuck to the same line. They're not, just not consistent across the board. Rick Gardigo from the Australian Dairy Farmers Association speaking with uh, Tina Quinn and the negotiations continue this week. The ABC has contacted Trade Minister Don Farrell for an interview on this. But uh, Andrew Curtis from the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association is well across this as well. I was interested to know how locals will be affected by this. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, how concerned are the locals? Look, I... I think, as as Rick has highlighted, it, it, it is a concern, and we certainly have local cheesemakers who um who would be absolutely affected by these um these potential changes. Um, it's critical from a negotiation point of view that we that we do say no, and and as again as has been highlighted, recognise the fact that um, we as an industry uh, make these cheeses because. Um, because we have a, a range of Europeans that have brought that heritage and that culture with them. It's not that we're trying to steal someone else's idea. It's that it's been it's been our cheesemaker's idea all along. And it, it seems as though the idea of saying Australian feta or Australian parmesan hasn't really been, received much uh, traction with the European Union. But is that something that the industry is, is uh, trying to push for to show that it is different from the uh, original place that it was uh, founded, I guess, or, or created, but uh, it, it, it's, it still retains that name? Look, it's, it's important to recognise that it's the, it's the style of cheese, yes, yes, there are some differences because our production systems and our climates are different. But um, uh, yeah, it's about the style that's made, and, and that that isn't that isn't tied to a geographic area anymore. Um, it may well have been two hundred years ago or a hundred years ago, but it's certainly not anymore. Wouldn't Australian cheesemakers, for instance, want to protect a cheese if, say, there was a cheese that was specifically made in Australia, say Barossa variety, for example, of some description? You can sort of see that they would want to protect that? Uh, if it was only made in the Barossa, um, then absolutely, yes, they may well do. But when you've got a cheese that is made in a number of areas internationally, not just in Australia, um, to have one area claim claim it um, for some historic reason uh, isn't appropriate. Do you think this could topple the FTA agreement with the European Union? Because it has been dragging on longer than some... We've, we've sort of negotiated the, the UK agreement in much shorter time. It's really been quite a sticking point. Do you think it could actually negate, negate the whole thing? There is a lot of benefits to the European Union and to Australia through having a free trade agreement. 
but it's important that we have the right balance. Um, and and yeah, I mean, we're not interested in in the dairy industry um, being being the loser out of out of something that most others win from. Um, it's important that we have the right balance. And I think this is, in terms of the trade, this is a, a minor issue. Um, uh, yeah, that should be able to be negotiated through. Are there any particular types of cheese that are particularly of concern? Like, are there the ones that we do particularly well or p- produce a lot of? Well, I mean, it has, again, has been discussed. Uh, varieties like feta and halloumi uh, and parmesan uh, are, are cheeses that we do do well, um, that we supply domestically across Australia, but we also have the ability to export um, particularly our premium products. And again, that would be that would be threatened. Um, if we were selling a, and I'm making this up, but a Parmesan into Japan uh, because of its, you know, superior quality, and all of a sudden we wouldn't be able to. And no matter what we called it in Australia, I'm not sure that the, the, um, the Japanese would be looking for a, um, you know, and a cheese of a different name uh, that looks and smells and tastes like Parmesan um, without that name. Well, Maria from Glenelg North says that as a person who works very hard to only buy Australian-made, I would welcome something that showed me very easily that the cheese products were made in Australia, for example. So if it was called Australian feta or it was called Moo or something like that, if we were the only country in the world to do that, it would make her happy. So uh, she uh, supports the idea of even just putting Australia in front of it to uh, differentiate. Uh, so it would be interesting to see how this goes because it is getting to the pointy end of these negotiations. Thanks so much for calling in, Andrew. Okay, thanks, Cassie. Andrew Curtis from the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association speaking there. And uh, we'll keep you up to date on how these negotiations go. Uh, It is proving to be one of the really tough nuts to crack as part of this free trade agreement. Finally today, though, uh, every farm business, indeed a lot of businesses, not just farming businesses, will one day have to deal with the issue of succession. But with soaring land prices, getting a start for young potential farmers who are not in line to inherit a farm is becoming harder. And then there's older farmers who might not have an obvious personal family member to take over the property when they want to retire. Victorian-based Sam Marwood started a business called Cultivate Farms, which aims to solve this issue by forming partnerships. And Emma Field started by asking what motivated him to launch such a business. Like I guess most things, you're trying to solve a problem for yourself. So my parents um, didn't give me the farm even when I begged for it in uh, central Victoria and I knew if I wasn't going to own a farm, why would I be a farmer? And so I went off and did other things. But about 15 years later, good friends Tim and Tegan Hicks and we came up with this idea of how do you make it possible for anyone to own a farm who is starting from scratch, who's not going to inherit and um, we thought that would be an amazing problem to solve and, and hence Coldway Farms was born. So tell us what your business does. We are matchmakers. Basically, I try to get as simple as possible, but um, we're, we're here to encourage the next generation and, and retiring farmers that there are solutions for them to uh, own their farm, and that's through partnering. And there are next gen who want to own. We're saying, well, you can either start with a lot of money or earn a lot of money and own your farm, or you can partner with someone like a retiring couple who don't have kids to hand their farm on to or who don't want to hand their farm on to their kids. That are after somebody or a couple who who deserve their property, and um, 
by matching these people together, they can work through an arrangement that works best for them, whether that's the land or business or both, and share farming, lease to buy, spend or finance, all those sort of terms. But we've realised it's about relationships. If you like somebody, you're willing, you'll work out a plan that, that is a win-win for both parties. And how has the business gone and what sort of um, partnerships have you been able to help form? It's taken a while to figure out what we what this is. So about six years ago, the idea formed and we spent a lot of time Googling and talking to people and, and, and just putting it out there. And now we've got, um, after a bit of momentum, we've got 30 matches uh, and we know there have been probably hundreds that have happened without us with people just jumping on our website and, and getting our free content. And we've got something here. We're really excited for it. Um, our job now is to, is to get the word out that um, you can own your farm and retiring farmers. You can age on farm. That's a phrase we use a lot. And we've got a free guide to help farmers step back and think, well, what do I want for my life and my farm? And I don't necessarily want to leave. How can I, how can I stay here? And we think sharing is, is a key part of that solution. Is there any particular commodity that are more suited to this type of partnership? We thought there might be, but we've realised it is about people. And I'm trying to pin down why people want to share or why they want to farm or what they farm. We can't nail that, but what we can nail is that if you do want to share, that there are people who will share with you. So if we focus on the people and we assume those farmers obviously know how to farm and farm well, whatever the commodity or, or size. So we keep it uh, centred on people and then we get the farmers to work through the details with their lawyers and accountants and, and, and agronomists. Yeah, speaking of lawyers and accountants, what are the very specific issues you help people navigate? It, it primarily is around that relationship side of things that we really are heavily focused in. So we do focus on what do you want, what do you want for your farm, and what's the vision, and, and making sure both parties are really clear uh, on what the the property and the farm's about, and what both parties are about. So we focus on that higher level thinking, uh, and then we encourage that everything is written down um, and to talk to, to lawyers and accountants locally, or you know, your own lawyers and accountants, to make sure that it's all above board and appropriate and a win win for both parties. Uh, but our focus is, is on. I guess love, isn't it? Love and, and relationships is a little bit different. Well, it sounds like establishing what people really want, which sometimes is maybe the hardest thing. But what are some of the roadblocks that people come up against when they are facing succession issues, whether you are an, uh, people looking to move off the property or, or looking to move on the property? What are kind of some of those things you, you help and talk with clients about? Well, number one is vision, I think, for yourself your family and, and, and for the property. So the, probably the barrier there is, well, what do you actually want? And getting people to sit down and think that you know, without limitation is a really hard thing to do, but really freeing. So it's having that time to sit down and go, well, yeah, what do I want? Uh, and hopefully the farm's part of it, but it doesn't have to be the thing that you do every day. So from a retiring farm point of view, it's, well, what, what do you really want for yourself and the farm? Other things around, does your family know about it? Make sure that if you do have family who could inherit that they're part of this discussion uh, as well. And then having... You know, really blunt discussions around ownership. Do you want to own the land? Do you, are you happy to, to share ownership in that or do you happy to sell a block at a time? Um, do you want to share in the business side of things? Do you want to keep the livestock the way you've got it? So it's just these technical, you know, legal arrangements and there's no correct answer, but it's just encouraging retiring farmers to think through. So we've often thought mental barriers are probably the biggest thing, especially for the next generation. Sam Marwood, who runs a farmer succession matchmaking business called Cultivate Farms, finishing that report by Emma Fields. An interesting idea there. That's just about all we have time for in the program today. But there's more coming up on Sonia Felthoff in the afternoon's program. So keep listening to ABC Local Radio. It's coming up to one o'clock.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.